Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. Uh, it's an honor to be able to open up uh, God's Word this morning with you. And so if you have your Bibles, I just invite you to take it up and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we'll just be in the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. Um, if you don't have your Bible, we have conveniently provided Bibles for you in the pews, and I would encourage you to take those and to open them up, and if you need help even finding it, this can, uh, text can be found on page 1016. Once again, we are in Luke chapter 18, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is read through the text, uh, and then pray, and then we will dive in and uh, study God's Word. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Dear Lord, now, as we worship you through the studying of your word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what we are about to hear, tune our ears to your spirit, Father. I pray that these would be the Holy Spirit's words, speaking through a mere man. I pray, Lord, that they would impact our hearts and that we would leave changed. Thank you, Lord, for your word and how perfect it is. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. A few years back, I had to um, purchase a new um, internet wireless router. Um, And so I I looked up uh, just all the different routers that you could buy online, and I decided to go into Best Buy, and I was dead set on purchasing a specific wireless router. Uh, but I had some questions, so of course I, I found a sales girl. She, she was young. She couldn't have been older than 18. Um, she was very, very good at what she did. Uh, because before I knew it, uh, I was walking out of Best Buy, not with one bag, uh, but with two bags uh, full of accessories that I didn't need. Uh, and not only that, uh, but not only did I, I not purchase the router that I was trying to buy, I purchased a router that was twice as expensive. Um, all, all because this girl was very good at what she did. Uh, at one point, I'm in the parking lot walking to my car, and I'm thinking, what just happened? <laughs> this girl was like magical with her words, because I had no intention on purchasing all of that. Uh, but one of her key techniques was that she was persistent. She was persistent. If you are a salesperson, um, persistence is part of your job. You have to be persistent if you want to make the sale. 
Um, I'm convinced my daughter is going to be a future salesman because she has learned the art of persistence. She, she will go on for days without, you know, and, and persist on something before we give in as parents. Um, maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you have somebody in your life, your child persists. Uh, children, students, maybe your parents persist to clean your room, do your homework, get the, your chores done. Um, we've all experienced that. And this is the picture that we get of this, of this widow, the persisting widow, the parable of the persisting widow. And so I want to I take a look at this. I want to take a look at what this says and what this means for us. Um, and as we look at the text, we'll actually see it divided neatly into really three different sections. Um, and just to serve as a roadmap, so to speak, uh, we see that Jesus gives an illustration, and then he gives an explanation, and then he gives some application. An illustration, an explanation, some application. Uh, before we get in there, though, I, I want to point out, um, right in verse 1, uh, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable. Um, we enter this passage halfway through a conversation. Um, when we study the Bible, it is good that we have these neatly packed chapters and verses. And if you're in an NIV or other translations, it has headings uh, that are neatly broke, that have neatly broken up passages of, of Scripture. And a lot of times this can be helpful for us. But if we're not careful, sometimes those things can um, actually lead us to interpret a passage differently than it was originally meant. Um, these chapters and these verses can actually be a distraction. And such is the case with this passage. The context for this parable is actually set back in chapter 17, in verse 20. And we won't go into too much depth, but this is the context of this conversation that we have entered into halfway. Um, Jesus has been approached by some Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask Jesus, when is the Son of Man going to reveal himself? When is the Son of Man going to reveal himself? When is the kingdom of God going to come? Basically is, is what they say. Um, Jesus answers them uh, rather very cryptically. There's, there's really nothing that we can pull from that. Um, he was very vague and ambiguous in his response. Um, but he, he does answer the question. Uh, you can read it on your own. But then he turns to his disciples in verse 22. And so since we're on the topic of the Son of Man coming back, he's referring to when Jesus returns, when the kingdom of God comes. Um, he says, since we're on the topic, let me explain a few more details to you. Let me explain to you how that day is going to look when the Son of Man is revealed. Um, and then after describing this, Jesus immediately into chapter 18 shares this parable about how disciples of Christ are to pray and not give up. And so given the context in chapter 17, it seems as though Jesus is telling his disciples this. I'm going to go away for a time, but I promise you I'm going to come back. And there's going to be some kind of delay, some kind of time before I return. And so I am going to share with you an illustration, an illustration, a parable about how you should respond in my absence. When I leave... I'm going to tell you what you need to do in my absence. 
You know, Jesus is probably saying, I've been hanging out with you guys for quite some time, and you are a motley bunch, and I know that you grow discouraged. I know that you're going to face challenges when I'm gone. You face not only just challenges, but special challenges that go with the territory of following me as a disciple. And so here's a little story about how you need to endure and not give up. Immediately, this becomes pretty applicable, doesn't it? Because you may be sitting here thinking, Pastor Mike, I've had a doozy of a week. Let, let me tell you about my week. My, my job looks bleak. My, my head is underwater. I can't get my head above water because it's, everything's too busy. Frankly, I just want to abandon ship. Maybe you're a parent and you're thinking, my, my teenage son, I, if my teenage son or daughter makes one more poor choice, I'm going to lose it. They've given me so many white hairs, and they just don't get it. And every single time I try and explain it to them, they, they seem to run the opposite direction. Or perhaps you're saying, there's cutbacks at my job. I don't know if my job is safe. This has been stressful for me. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, is this really worth it? And the worst of all, maybe you're sitting here, and because of your faith in Jesus... You've been persecuted. Maybe because you are a Christ follower, you have missed out on opportunities. You have lost relationships. You have broken relationships. Maybe you're being persecuted for your faith. And inside your head, you ask the question, is this really worth it? Is Christ, is following Christ really all that it's hyped up to be? Because I just want to quit. I just want to stop. Jesus says through this parable that, that we're about to study that in order to get through those hard times, pray. Pray and don't give up. You're having a hard week? Pray. Not only does this become immediately applicable, but it also becomes immediately convicting. Because if one of you were to follow me this week and record every second that I pray, frankly, I'd be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed if you saw the amount of time that I took in prayer. You know, persistence in prayer is not something that contemporary Americans are very good at. The American church particularly is very comfortable and very reliant on their own vices, on their own things, and they don't rely on prayer. They rely, you know, we rely on things that, that make us comfortable, things that, uh, things that we go to instead of God. And this is a very big problem that the American church is experiencing, I think, when we become more dependent on our vices than turning to God in prayer. And so you can imagine the spiritual battle that I had this week as I was preparing this message on prayer, convicted at the same time that I don't pray enough. And I don't think I'm the only one, um, I don't think I'm alone in this. Several years back, uh, Lifeway Christian Resources surveyed um, several thousands of evangelical leaders from around the world, and they wanted to determine what they perceived to be the top ten greatest issues facing the church today. When they got the results in, the top answer, the top issue, was the need for more ongoing, persistent prayer 
both personally and corporately. Of all of the evangelical leaders uh, surveyed, their top issue with the church today was we don't pray enough. We don't pray enough. And so Jesus addresses this because he knows it's hard. Uh, he knows how hard it is for us to pray, I think. But he urges us to, praise, to, to pray and not lose heart, not to give up. And so in verses 2 through 5, if you were to look, we see this illustration. We see this illustration. We're, we're introduced to two characters. Um, the first character I want to bring to your attention is the widow. And if we look at the text, we can actually pull some things out of this that describe the widow that we might not see at first glance. Um, the first one is uh, probably the most obvious one. She doesn't have a family. Um, she, she's a widow. She doesn't have a husband. Uh, we also know that she doesn't have any kind of sons or male relatives. Because in this context, the only time that a woman would appear in court before a judge is if there was, a man, if there was not a man present to go on her behalf. So the fact that she is appearing before this judge by herself in this culture shows that she had no family, or, or males at least. She was alone. She was alone. Second, uh, we also know that she was probably poor. Um, in this culture, there uh, several times there was corrupt judicial systems, and judges would often receive bribes in order to hear a case. And so the fact that she persists just shows that she doesn't have the financial resources to bribe the judge to hear her case. So she was poor. She didn't have a family. She didn't have any resources. And then finally, the one, the main purpose is, obviously there was something, uh, someone had wronged her. There was some injustice that occurred with her. Uh, we don't know all the details. We don't know what it is. Um, given the context, you could probably, uh, it, it would be a wise estimation to say that it was some kind of financial matter. There might have been debt that was owed her that she hadn't received yet, uh, given the context. Uh, but what we get is this picture of a classic victim. This woman um, has been wronged. She's completely helpless. She's completely hopeless. She is a symbol of complete helplessness. She's holding all the wrong cards, and all the odds in life are stacked against her. She is hopeless. And maybe you look at that widow in the text and you say, yes, I get it. Because that's, that's me. That's how I feel right now. That I can't, I just, I can't make it in life. I feel like all the odds in life are stacked up against me. I understand this widow. If I was the widow... Much like most of us, I would probably wallow in my circumstance. I would be discouraged, and I would have the unnerving desire to give up, to lose all heart. It would take the judge only one time to say no, and I would retreat back with my tail between my legs, back to my miserable, helpless life. But this parable is different. And much like many of Jesus' parables, something shocking happens. This, was, this happened often in Jesus' parables. Something shocking happened. And the, the shock factor in this parable is actually the reaction of the widow. She comes back over and over and over again. 
Instead of feeling helpless and hopeless, she actually assumes an unusual responsibility for her own well-being. Um, she has one weapon, and that weapon is justice. The fact that she is owed the truth, she is in the right, and she uses that weapon very, very well over and over and over again. She persists, and she continues to badger this judge to make a ruling. Why did she need to persist? Why did she need to go back to him over and over again? Well, because we're actually given a peek into the, the life of the judge. What does it say? The judge is described as a man who neither feared God nor cared about men. He didn't care what God thought of him. He didn't care what people thought of him. His reputation meant nothing to him. If that woman went off and talked about how bad of a judge this guy was, he wouldn't care. He honestly wouldn't care. But he finally makes a rule. He makes a rule not because he doesn't, excuse me, let me backtrack a little bit. He doesn't make a rule for the widow because he doesn't care, because he has no sympathy. But she keeps coming back to Adam over and over again. Um, you know, she was probably there when he went to work. She was probably there when he left work. She was probably there on his lunch break in the park. He probably saw her coming from a mile away and saying, Oh my goodness, that woman is back. That woman keeps coming back. Why won't she leave me alone? So eventually he decides to make a ruling. Why the change of heart? It isn't because he had a newfound care for her. If anything, it was a newfound hatred for the woman. He says, I'm just going to make the ruling to get her away from me. I'm going to make a ruling. I'm going to rule justice for her just to get her out of my hair. Because she's bothering me. Verse 5 he says that she keeps, he says she keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out. If you look at the literal translation of his concern for her to eventually wear her out, he is actually concerned for his physical well-being. If you look at that literally, it could translate into, I'm afraid she's going to give me a black eye. He, he's probably sitting there thinking the next time that woman comes, she's going to show up with, with a club and she's going to give me a black eye. She's going to take me out. And so I better get rid of her. I better just get rid of her before she gets rid of me is what, is what he's thinking and what, what he's saying. And so, and so he rules because he thinks she's probably a crazy woman who's going to attack him. Um, he is purely motivated by her persistence. He's purely motivated by her persistence, not because he cared about his own reputation, not because all of a sudden he had sympathy for her, but because she was persistent. Because she was persistent. And that's the story that Jesus tells. That's the illustration. And he quickly moves from the, the illustration to the explanation. The illustration to the explanation in verses 6 through 7. What does he say? He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? In order to explain this illustration, Jesus uses what we describe as a how much more 
format. This was very popular in, in Jewish culture. Um, and the explanation isn't based on comparison, but actually contrast. It's not based on uh, how God looks compared to the judge, but in contrast to the judge. And so this is basically what Jesus is saying. If a wicked judge who isn't uh, motivated by the right things grants justice to a nameless, unknown, helpless widow, how much more will God, who's righteous and loves you and cares for you, grant justice and answer prayers for those who he has chosen or those he knows? If a judge grants justice, a wicked judge grants justice to an unknown woman, how much more will a righteous God grant justice, answer prayers to his chosen ones, ones that he knows, ones that he loves, and ones that cry out to him day and night? This is the explanation. It's a very, very simple explanation. And we actually move very quickly into the application. Jesus doesn't waste any time. In verse 8, and we can actually pull out two points of application from verse 8. One point talks about God and his character, and the other point talks about us. Jesus answers, uh, asks the question, let's look at it again in verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? It sounds like a rhetorical question, but Jesus right away in verse 8 says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly, he, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus is promising his disciples, if you have been wronged, if there is injustice and you're following me, uh, you will get justice. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I might be sitting back thinking, whoa, Jesus, that is a very large promise. That is a big promise. Who gave you the authority? What makes you think that you can make such a promise that we will uh, get justice? How can you ensure that we will receive justice? Well, Jesus knows. Jesus knows this because in just in a few chapters in Luke, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross where he is going to pay for all of the wrongdoing and all of the injustice that has ever happened Past, present, future. When Jesus goes to the cross, that's the beginning of justice. That is justice. When Jesus pays the price for all of the injustice. And we sit here and we watch the news and we think, how can such atrocity occur? How can murderers get away with what they're doing? How can these evil, wicked men get away with what they're doing? How can overseas they be slaughtering Christians and they get away with it? How is that justice? And we look to God and we say, God, how can you allow this to happen? Why aren't you doing anything about it? Verse 8, Jesus says, I, I have done something about it, and I will do something about it. When Jesus poured out his life on the cross, justice was served once and for all. And all of those people that have done horrific things will pay for what they've done, either through 
their own blood or the blood of Christ? And the decision is is theirs and yours. And if you're sitting here and you think, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can such evil people get off scot-free on the sacrifice of Jesus and they won't have to pay for what they're doing? If you're one of those people that are sitting here and you're saying it's not fair, let me remind you that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just pay for all the injustice done to you, but he also paid for all the injustice that you've ever done to other people. And most importantly, the injustice that you've done to God. Is it fair? Absolutely not. But that's the beauty of grace. It's the beauty of mercy that God gives us through his son. Yes, there are wicked people that are going to go to heaven and not have to pay for what they've done, but because Jesus did it. And frankly, I'm one of those wicked people. I'm one of those wicked people that when I look at my sin, I don't deserve it, but Christ died on the cross for it. And I'm thankful for it. Of course it's not fair. But that's what's so beautiful about his grace and his mercy. Christ's followers, when Jesus comes again, we will be avenged once and for all. We will be avenged once and for all. And Jesus ends with one final rhetorical question at the end of verse 8. This is the second part of application that we'll end on. He switches the focus from himself and he puts the focus back onto us as humankind, as a whole. What does he say? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Basically what Jesus is saying is, hey, I am going to hold up my end of the deal. You can take that to the bank. You can trust me because I have been faithful to you and I will always be faithful to you and I will return. But on that day that I return, where will you be? Will I find faith on earth? And he's not talking about if he's going to find any believers or faith in general. What he's actually saying is, what kind of faith am I going to see? Will I see people that are loyal and faithful to me as I have been faithful to them? Is that what I'm going to find? What kind of faith will I find when I return? We're called to be like the widow the persistent widow. And this is the big picture. This is the big idea of this whole passage. The question is not when or where Jesus will return, but given his promise to us that justice will come once and for all, how will we respond? We shouldn't be concerned about when or where Jesus is going to come, but when he does come, in the meantime, in our waiting time, how are we to respond? One commentator describes it like this. He says, Scripture outlines that future, not with detailed dates, but with a general outline of what's to come. That outline is designed not to have us prepare charts, but to prepare our hearts. Let me read it again. Scripture outlines the future, not with detailed dates, but with a general outline of what's to come. And that outline is designed not to have us prepare charts, but to prepare our hearts. Verse 8 keeps our focus on the attitude that we should have about Christ's return. 
Even in the darkest days, in the hard weeks, in the painful weeks, we must remain loyal and faithful. And nothing manifests this more clearly than your prayer life. Nothing that you could do manifests this loyalty and this faithfulness than going to God over and over again. The idea of praying stands as the climax of this section about faithfulness and loyalty um, in, in the meantime until Jesus returns. You look through all of Scripture and over and over again, prayer stands at the center of the means of God working. Scripture is serious about prayer. When we pray, God works. When we pray, God works. When we ask Him with a pure heart, He gives gracious and He gives good, He gives graciously and He gives good, good gifts from above. God moves through the means of prayer. When we pray, God works. And so take a hard, close look at your prayer life. You may say that you want um, God to move in powerful ways. You may say that you want God to reign in this church, in your life, in this country. Is that reflective in your prayer life? You may say that you have a close-knit relationship with God. But is that reflective in your prayer life? Our prayer should be an all-encompassing part of day. Day and night I cry to God. When I get up, I pray. When I get ready for the work day, I pray. When I drive to work, I pray. When I'm with others, I pray. When I eat dinner, I pray. And when I go to sleep, I pray. It should be part of the fabric of our daily life. And it's hard. I get it. Why is it so hard? I think there's... Two reasons, in my own opinion. The first reason is we're busy. I get it. I'm a busy pastor. I'm a busy businessman. I'm a busy mom. I'm a busy student. We're all busy. I don't think there's a single person in this room who wouldn't uh, disagree with that statement. But let me ask you a question. What would your marriage look like if you treated your conversations like you do your prayer? What would your relationships with your children or with your friends or with anybody else, what would that look like if we treated it like we do our prayer life? Yeah, I got my five minutes in today of conversation. I can knock that off my checklist. Of course we're busy. But God calls us, Jesus calls us to put prayer as a priority. And... When we come out and say, I'm too busy to pray, we are elevating whatever it is you are busy with, with communing with God. Whatever you are busy with, you are elevating that above your relationship with God. The second reason is, not only are we busy, we just give up. We just give up. We give up because it doesn't feel like God is listening, let alone even paying attention. We give up because it doesn't seem like it's working. We'd be amazed at how little we go to God for things. Uh, You know, as I evaluate my own prayer life, I think about things that I'm passionate about, and then I think, well, I prayed for that once, and I stopped. Why? 
Because I gave up. I gave up too soon. Don't give up after one try. Uh, When I was little, I remember learning how to ride a bike. Um, I, I was full of excitement, but that excitement was quickly diminished when I kept falling down over and over and over and over again. Um, And at one point, after one particular hard fall, I I decided to give up. I was completely content that I would never learn how to ride a bike. I I had made the decision that I wasn't going to learn how to ride a bike, and I was okay with that, because it wasn't worth falling down over and over and over again. But I'm so thankful for my father, who after that hard fall set me on the curbside, wiped a tear off of my eye, And said, Michael, you have to keep trying. Don't give up. You have to keep trying. Don't give up. And I would love to say that his rousing encouragement uh, motivated me to get right back on that bike. And then all of a sudden it clicked for me and I learned how to do it. It would have been much less painful if that was the case. But I didn't get it right away. I kept falling over and over and over again. But I kept getting up over and over and over again until eventually it clicked. I figured it out. What if we treated prayer like learning to ride a bike? Through the discouragement, through the hardest of times in life, through our pain and agony, through our shortfalls, We just keep getting back on our knees and going to God in prayer. What if our prayer life was like learning to ride a bike where we didn't give up no matter what? We would keep going back to God in prayer because something happens when we continue to go to God in prayer. We grow dependent on him and we see his faithfulness to us. I look at my own life and I I just, I, I lament at how easily I give up. I have, um, if I could be vulnerable for a second, I have family members who I look at their life and it seems like there is no hope for them. There is no hope that they will ever come to know Christ. And you know, that's reflective in my prayer life. Several of them I have stopped praying for. Shame on me. Shame on me for giving up praying for them. Shame on me for not getting back on the bike. Shame on me for not persisting in my prayer for my loved ones who don't know Jesus. Shame on me. In all reality, when I lose hope in those people, those family members, there's a deeper issue here. And I might not come out and explicitly state it, But when I lose heart, I'm not losing heart in them. I'm not losing hope in them. I'm I'm losing hope in God. When I stop praying, I look to God and say, God, you're not strong enough. You're not big enough. You're not wise enough. You're not smart enough. A lack of prayer demonstrates a lack of faith and trust in God and his word. And the more persistent we are in prayer, the more we understand his faithfulness to us and our dependency on him. And so here's a challenge for you. Here's a challenge. 
Pick a few things that you are absolutely passionate about that you want to see God do in your life, in other people's lives, in this church. And then pray persistently. And you might think, well, what does that look like, Mike? I would suggest that every single day, every single day, you pray for that thing until one of two things happens. You pray for it until it, uh, you pray for it until God either definitively answers it, or you die. Pray for it until God answers or calls you home. That is what persistent prayer looks like. That is what it looks like to always pray and not give up. If Jesus came back today, would He find this kind of faith? Would he find this kind of faith in you? Would he find this kind of faith in me? One that prays persistently. I'll end with this quote from Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers is known as writing probably one of the most well-known devotionals of all time. Uh, My utmost for his highest. Oswald Chambers says, Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Always pray. Don't give up.